This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Charles Delheim occurred in August 2021. A prolific author, uh, fascinating uh, work we're going to be talking about here called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. Uh, Charles Delheim, he is the son of a German-Jewish refugee. He was born in New York City, and he's a professor of history at Boston University. Uh, he has numerous uh, fellowships to his credit, uh, including the National Endowment for the Humanities at Harvard University Business School and the University of Pennsylvania, again, uh, and the author of numerous works prior to this, but extremely pleased to have him here. Fascinating story, fascinating concept, and some information. Uh, Charles, uh, how are you, my friend? I am good, and I'm very happy to be here. I have had many students from Kansas over the years and a few from Lawrence. I've never had a chance um, to visit, but I hope that's in the post-pandemic future. Yeah, indeed, and I hope you you have been staying safe. Obviously, you have over the last year and a half or so, but uh, what an extraordinary time it has been, uh, unfortunately. But anyway, well, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. Why don't you do, give us a little bit of setup, if you would, uh, about belonging and betrayal, kind of the backstory, so to speak, and what was it in particular that really drew you to this? Sure. Uh, it's a fairly complicated story and a, a long and circuitous history, which really goes back to my grad school days when I was interested in uh, a lot of different subjects, and one of which was um, the role of Jews in modern culture. I ended up going in a very direct, different direction and studied uh, British politics and culture and business. Um, so how I got into this was really largely by accident. I never had a particular interested in the art market, though I've always been interested in art history and architectural history. But the real starting point is uh, in the late 1990s, um, more than 50 years after the Second World War ended, there was a dramatic and unexpected resurgence of interest in the story of Nazi stolen art. Um, it became a um, an issue to be resolved as well as a uh, story to be told. And um, partly because of my own cultural background and partly because I'm a cultural historian, I was drawn into this darkly enthralling story of how Nazis and collaborators ransacked um, Jewish art collections. Uh, they also uh, ransacked sacred objects, rare books, precious manuscripts, and musical instruments. And I closely followed the um, uh, revelations about you know, new discoveries of works of art with muddy provenance, um, and I welcomed the restitution, um, the long-delayed restitution of famous works of art, um, perhaps uh, most celebrated of which 
uh, was Gustav Klimt's wonderful portrait of Adele Block Bauer I um, on 1907. Uh, and the idea that it took so many years to go back to their rightful heirs um, or the original owners, um, which was a bit more rare, um, really caught my attention. Um, at the same time, though, um, as a historian, I felt that the wrong questions were being asked in certain cases. And what I became interested in was in understanding the backstory. That is, how did a cultural minority against um, all odds uh, acquire so much great old and modern art in the first place? How did people who were outsiders, who traditionally had been on the periphery of European high culture, um, come to play so pivotal a role in the art world? How did they become uh, the old masters, new masters, and the modernist champions? And that was the puzzle that I set out to explore and that was the backstory of Nazi stolen art. And what you hear in the background is our rather crazy three-and-a-half-month-old yellow Labrador puppy whose interests are not at all scholarly, but who seems to have escaped from his crate, uh, to which he is going to happily return. Yeah, well, anyway, he, he, sorry. So, Nope, nope. This is uh, this is exactly why we do this. We take all all comers here, and uh, take, take all situations. He is is it a he or a she? It's a he. It's a, well, he, he is my uh, my fourth Labrador, and um, thus far by far the naughtiest. And what is his name? His name is Leopold. All right. Well, Leo, Leopold, or Leo, however you want to refer to him, he is always welcome here. Let me. Well, let me do very some, nice of you. Okay. Let me do some uh, some quick follow up here. You say that uh, again for sort of a some semi marginalized group, uh, the ability to amass uh, the art collections that were there uh, and the various art. I'm curious as to. From the research that you were doing, uh, the Nazis pillaging this, were they specifically targeting art, or were they targeting assets of all kinds, including money, bank accounts, etc.? Or was art, for some particular reason, their focus? That's a really good question, Warner. Um, one of the things that we know about the Nazis is that they were fueled by this utterly vicious uh, race, racist ideology, which was aimed mostly at Jews, but also at Slavs, um, Poles in particular, who were seen as untermenschen, as subhuman. Um, when the Nazis came to power, though, um, in the, and, and they began to um, consolidate their power in the course of the 1930s, uh, they began to strip Jews of a wide variety of assets. And this is the largest case of systematic dispossession in history. And it's systematic because it is run by the state. And as you say, 
Um, they took everything they could get their hands on, um, money, gold, um, businesses, large and small. And the uh, word they used to um, whitewash this, as it were, was Aryanization. So to Aryanize a, um, a Jewish-owned business, like my own father's family's business, they were grain dealers and cattle dealers and horse dealers, was that they would strip Jews of all assets, and in almost all cases, there was no compensation. And then they would put in charge a uh, someone who was, in their view, racially pure, um, an Aryan. Now, how does art come into this story? Um, art plays a very significant role in Nazi policy. Uh, um, Hitler, as you probably know, um, was a failed artist, and among his failings was that he was unable to portray faces, um, that is, to recognize the humanity of others and to um, capture that humanity um, on paper or um, by some other kind of media. And Hitler and the circle around Hitler had grandiose cultural ambitions. Uh, and those ambitions were also quite reactionary. Um, they believed that modern art was um, degenerate. It was decadent. Um, it was an art identified uh, with Jews and Bolsheviks. Now, um, this is ludicrous oversimplification. Um, the greatest masters of um, modern art, people like Picasso and Matisse, uh, were at least born good Catholics. Um, and there was nothing Jewish or Bolshevik um, about them. Uh, so what you see happening is that for the Nazis, there is a kind of Kulturkampf, a cultural struggle um, against Jews, um, against Bolsheviks, um, and against modernism. And you see this first in the book burning that took place in 1933. But what you have to understand about all of these things is there's no real logic there. Yes, they burned the works of Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, who they excoriated as purveyors of Jewish science, as if physics um, has any kind of religious or ethnic origin. Um, but they also threw into the fire um, the works of Helen Keller. So art um, is particularly of interest to the Nazis, uh, first because they um, extol northern old masters, um, Rembrandt. Um, they um, concoct the idea that Rembrandt, a, um, a good Dutchman from Leiden, uh, was really German, or that he was Aryan and racially pure. And they want to get their hands on any and old um, uh, northern old masters. And if they were in Jewish hands, they were vulnerable. They could be taken. Uh, if they were in the hands of Gentiles, um, no. And what they also wanted to do was to purge 
German museums and galleries of all works of modern art. And that ended up being a very large number, around 16,000. Uh, some of those works, they simply burned or destroyed. Um, others, they sold for hard currency, and still others, they traded um, on the open market for northern old masters. Uh, one other thing about this is that, just to give you one example, when um, France falls disastrously um, after only six weeks in mid-June uh, 1940, and the Nazis marched through the Arc de Triomphe along the Champs-Élysées and occupy the city, they've already put together a list of the leading um, Jewish dealers and collectors. So from the first, they intended to uh, dispossess these people of their assets. If you just... If you just joined us, here's truly Warner Lewis from the Flight Deck, uh, as always, of Lewis at Large. Got a good one going here with Professor of History uh, at Boston University, Charles Delheim. Uh, a new work called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. Uh, that's a good spot right there. Uh, Charles, the, the subtitle, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. Uh, put a little sharper point on that for us, if you would. Sure. I mean, as historians, when we're asked when the modern age begins, I'm tempted to say that depends a little bit on your specialty. Uh, 17th and 18th century historians make an argument for uh, modernity beginning with, say, um, the Enlightenment. Um, uh, others will say that modernity begins with the French and Industrial Revolutions, um, that transformed politics and transformed uh, the economy and technology. And those are pretty um, effective arguments. Uh, what I'm looking at, though, is the overthrow of the old regime in the art world. So what does it mean to be modern? Well, first, um, it's a question of the gradual opening of European high culture. Um, until later in the 18th century, um, most of us, um, the um, ordinary men and women of um, humble um, social origins, would not have been able to see works of art at all. Uh, they were housed in palaces or in um, uh, private villas, uh, or perhaps uh, with the princes of the church. And one of the things that happens in the later 18th and early 19th century um, is the building of public museums. So the role of Jews in making the art world modern really takes place on two fronts. Um, the first is, who owns great works of art and who has the opportunity to see them? Uh, traditionally, art was the province of the church and the state, and the royal court um, dominated art because it provided patronage um, to artists. In the later 19th century, though, for a variety of reasons, 
um, the European aristocracy, and in particular the English landed aristocracy, um, is in a financial crisis. And anyone who's watched, say, Downton Abbey realizes that the great landowners may have had an enormous um, value um, of their estates, but that value couldn't be converted into liquidated capital. So when things get tough and they have to pay higher taxes, and especially when they have to pay death duties, they have to sell off um, their property. That could be um, a house in London. Uh, it could be cattle. It could be a piece of land. But very often it was family art collections. And what this massive sell-off did was it disrupted the old order of things, that the aristocrats who had been among the greatest patrons of art were no longer buyers. They were, for the most part, sellers. And that opens up opportunities for the rest of us. And one of the things that I show is the role of Jewish entrepreneurs in engineering this massive transfer of works of art from the aristocracy um, to a new capitalist class and from Europe to the United States. And you see this um, all over our country um, in museums, large and small. So becoming modern really means um, taking away certain hereditary privileges, opening up who owns art, but especially who sees art. So that's one front in the world of, say, old masters, um, historic sculpture, decorative art. The other front is in terms of contemporary painting. Um, in the mid um, and late 19th century, say, in Paris, um, the art world was controlled by um, the Academy of Fine Arts, which trained artists, and the annual Salon, um, which exhibited their works. Um, these bodies were uh, relatively old. Uh, one of them goes back to 1648. And like many old institutions, they suffered from a certain kind of rigidity. So when Edouard Manet and the Impressionists come along, um, and they are consciously departing from challenging this classical aesthetic, the Academy and the Salon are unable or unwilling to accommodate them. These people needed a new way to sell their painting. They needed a way to carve out um, careers for themselves. And this means that what had really been a kind of monopoly situation of the old um, auction houses in Paris and London and in Rome is opened up and there's a disruption. And whenever you have a disruption, you have an opening for new players. Now, this isn't specifically about Jews, but it coincides with a moment when Jews are migrating to Western and Central Europe. They are trying to acculturate. They're trying to find a place for themselves in the wider culture. 
and art occupies a critical role in this culture. It offers a kind of um, uh, common ground for people who may come from different social classes or different nationalities or um, different religions. And Jewish dealers and collectors become some of the most important champions and interpreters of art. And some also become artists, people like um, uh, Modigliani um, or Max Liebermann or Chaim Soutin. There have been uh, numerous movies uh, about stolen art, uh, in particular, uh, during World War II. One of them that comes to mind immediately is The Monuments Men, and there's been a couple of others uh, in the last few years. I'm curious, A, have you seen those, and B, uh, what's your take on those? What, what, how does that add, or, 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 or is it even connected at all with belonging and betrayal? Well, I, I, I have seen all of them. I have liked some um, more than others. I tend to like the cast better than um, the screenplays um, and the way in which they are um, produced. I think it has a lot to do with belonging and betrayal because belonging and betrayal begins with a man named James Rorimer. Uh, and when we meet him, he's a lieutenant in the American army. Um, he fought his way into the army. He had had heart problems. He was in his late 30s. Uh, he was the director of the cloisters, the, one of the branches of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, he finally uses all the social influence he can muster to get into um, the forces and serve his country. And he starts out as a buck private. Uh, but um, in the, by the middle of the war, uh, there is general awareness um, in Britain and America among the governing classes, among polit politicians and officials, um, that it's important to find a way to take care of monuments and also to be able to protect art. Now, at the time, they had no idea about the inconceivably large scale of stolen art. But Rorimer, um, um, who I start the story with, um, as I mentioned, um, goes to France, and um, he ends up in Paris where he learns from various um, officials in the French museum world, some connected to the resistance, about the enormity of the uh, dispossession of Jewish-owned collections. And with help um, from an extraordinary woman named Rose Valland, who was an assistant at the uh, the Jeu de Pomme, this little jewel of a museum in Paris in the Tuileries Gardens, uh, where she believed the Nazis had transported um, this stolen art. And with um, the help of a few other people and his fellow so-called monuments men, he begins to track this down. So I do tell this story at the beginning and the end of belonging and betrayal. Where the, the films tend to go off is 
um, especially with monuments men, uh, we learn a lot about stolen art. We um, don't learn very much about the stolen lives of the dealers and collectors and artists. And that's what I try to do in Belonging and Betrayal, is to correct this balance and to recreate the lives and works of the people whose art was stolen. So that this isn't simply a story about um, property and ownership, though that inevitably um, comes into it. Um, it's a story of cultural ambition, of the desire to belong, to affiliate, um, to find a way into a, a world in which Jews were, and of course are, um, a minority. And that's a story about belonging. And these are people who are not just merchants, but they are self-taught connoisseurs with astonishing eyes who, by scouring museums and galleries and exhibits, by scrutinizing countless works of art, are um, able to teach themselves about art in a way that would not have been possible um, otherwise. And in the end, they are betrayed. Um, the bargain of Jewish assimilation and acculturation was that if Jews erase or minimize signs of difference, if they um, learn um, English or French or German, um, if they immerse themselves in national cultures or traditions, they will be fully accepted. And uh, what we see happening in Nazi-occupied Europe is quite the opposite, that Jews were not treated as full human beings. Um, their citizenship is taken away. Their assets are taken away. And then, of course, as we all know, um, um, millions lose their lives. Well, it is a very, very fascinating, uh, complicated with depth and lots of texture. The work is called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern uh, by Boston University professor of history and also a prolific uh, historian and writer in his own right, Charles Delheim. Hey, Charles, how can uh, people pick up a copy of this? And also uh, would like to know, uh, do you have a website or how can people find out more about many of the uh, of some of your earlier writings? I'm afraid I'm not much of a self-promoter, um, uh, so I don't have a website. Um, I, I may um, end up having to um, put one together, um, but you can Google me like you can Google anybody else, and a couple of my other books, um, The Disenchanted Isle, which is about Mrs. Thatcher's England and the face of the past, which is... Um, about the recovery of the medieval legacy in 19th century England are um, available on um, Amazon. And people are um, welcome to write to me. I, I will write back. All right. Wonderful. Listen, thank you so much for spending time with us today and uh, have a great uh, 2021. And you too, and to all of your listeners. This was a real pleasure, Warner. Great. Thank you so much. And we will be back okay. with more right after this on Lewis at Large. 
Hey, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Warner. I appreciate it, too. All right, you take care. Hope, it, hope you got some useful stuff out of it. Indeed. Yeah, we love working with Lissa Warren, too. She's just wonderful. Yeah, she's lovely. She's great. All right, you take okay. care. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.